then die and rise again for the sins of His people. It is in particular the resurrection of Jesus that has received the skeptics' greatest scorn and been the focal point of history's most vicious attacks. Beginning with the effort of the ancient Israel's apostate leadership to bribe the Roman guards into telling that foolish story that Jesus' disciples came while they were sleeping and stole the body. To other skeptics who put forth the crazy theory that Jesus merely swooned on the cross, and then later when He was placed in the damp atmosphere of the tomb, He revived, woke up, pushed the stone away, and took off into the night. There have always been hard-hearted unbelievers. But this morning, it's not my intention to argue for the historicity of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The records are plain. Jesus died on a Roman cross. He was laid in a borrowed tomb. On the third day, He rose bodily from the dead. And He was seen over a period of 40 days by many, many eyewitnesses, including 500 of them at one time. So this morning, instead of discussing with you the reality of the resurrection, what I want to talk with you about this morning is the meaning of that resurrection. The meaning. One writer said that in order to be saved, we must believe not only that Jesus died and rose again, but why? Why did He die and why did He rise again? Open your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles available for you. They're in the pew rack in front of you, or if you're sitting on an aisle, they'll be under your seat. If you'll open one of those Bibles up to page 1129, you'll arrive at the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. Romans 4 and verse 25. This verse is a comprehensive statement on the meaning of Easter. Its parallelism inclines many commentators to think that it is actually a portion of an early Christian creed, something that the early church would memorize and recite one to another to encourage one another in the faith. God's entire redemptive plan is summarized in this one little verse. It's power-packed. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He, that is Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. He was delivered up because of our transgressions. He was raised because of our justification. This morning I want to explore with you the twofold meaning of Easter. So that together we might understand and believe its life-changing message. 
The meaning of Easter is found here in this verse and in the two portions of this verse. In the back of your worship bulletin, there is an outline of this morning's message and a place to scratch a few notes if you're so inclined. I want to look beginning with you at the first part of this verse, and that is that the meaning of Easter is found in Jesus' death. The meaning of Easter is found in Jesus' death. He was delivered up for our transgressions. And the understanding of this verse really begins with that expression, our transgressions. It all begins there. The Greek word translated transgressions here, parapatoma in the Greek, it, it's a general word and it means faults or sins or trespasses or offenses. And in particular, it refers to all lapses of morality and ethics as well as a deliberate refusal to believe. So it's a very general word and it sort of gathers up all of that in one word. Furthermore, that these faults, these trespasses, offenses, moral lapses, ethical lapses, outright refusal to believe, are furthermore clarified here in the first part of the verse with the use of the word our. Do you see that? He was delivered up because of our transgressions. It is our transgressions that brought about Jesus' death. There's something very personal about this verse. But how did our transgressions bring about His death? Why did our transgressions bring about His death? I'm sure all this morning have heard of the Ten Commandments, right? Not ten suggestions from God, but ten commandments from God. Perhaps it's been a while since you've read them. So let me just review for you very briefly, not God's ten suggestions, but God's ten commandments to us. Exodus 20, he says, I am the Lord your God. Number one, you shall have no other gods besides me. You shall have no other gods besides me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. No idols. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and your mother. You must honor your father and your mother. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Number ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife or his servants or his animals or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Ten very straightforward commandments from God 
and we've all broken them. Everyone here has broken them. We have broken them in thought. We have broken them in word. And we have broken them in deed. We're told in the New Testament that to break one is to break all, for the law is a unity. We're all lawbreakers here this morning. Beyond this list of Ten Commandments, we find in the New Testament Jesus sort of summarizing them for us under two. He pulls up the ten and he, he puts them all together under two commandments. So if ten is too hard, perhaps two would be easier. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's easier, isn't it? Ten was too hard. These two perhaps are a little easier. All you've got to do is love God with the entirety of your being and your neighbor just like you love yourself. Oops. Right? Oops. Okay, well, maybe two is too hard. How about one? How about if we just boil it down to one commandment? Just one. That's all you have to do. Jesus simplified it this way in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) But if we know and freely acknowledge anything in this life, it is that nobody is perfect. Nobody's perfect. That means all of us have a problem. All of us have a problem. It's not just my problem. It's not just your problem. It's all of our problems. We all have a problem. We all have the same problem. God's legal requirement is perfection and we don't make it. We don't live up. That makes us guilty of what the Bible calls sin or transgression. Sin or transgression. We're guilty. Every single one of us. But see, the problem goes further and deeper even than that. Because God is the creator and ruler of His universe. And as its creator and its ruler, He not only establishes its laws, but the penalty for those who break those laws. kind of like the United States government. The United States government makes laws governing its citizens and it establishes the penalties for those who break those laws. Just like the government of the nation of Germany makes laws governing its citizens and the penalties for those who break its laws. It's called sovereignty. It's what it means to be a sovereign nation. The right and authority to make law and establish penalty for those who break that law. So when it comes to the universe, God is sovereign. He is king over his own creation. That means that he makes all the laws and he decides all the penalties for those who violate those law. And there is no court of appeal. 
There's no higher authority to one to whom one might go and say, I don't agree with this law. I don't like the penalty. Give me another chance. This is where it gets really scary. You see, because in God's universe, the penalty for sin is death. Death. It is the death penalty. Beginning with Adam and his deliberate violation of God's commandment and continuing right down to this very moment, God's law remains unchanged. And so does the penalty for those who violate it. The prophet Ezekiel put it this way in Ezekiel chapter 18 and in verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. Speaking on behalf of God. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. Will die. In fact, the incontrovertible proof that all people are sinners can easily be discerned by a short stroll through the local cemetery. Take a half an hour, visit the local cemetery, walk along and take a look at the headstones. Men and women, young and old, rich and poor. Death is the great leveler of all. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6:23. We all reside under a death penalty. It is the absolute unimpeachable truth to the reality that we're sinners. We all have an appointment with the undertaker. Furthermore, though, the Bible says that death is not the end of it all. It doesn't end there. Our appointment with death is much like a doorway into God's great throne room where we will face His righteous fury naked and without defense. The writer of the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9 and in verse 27, he says that it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. It's very sobering. Very, very sobering. And as we think on these things, we begin to feel the crushing burden of our transgressions. Our transgressions. But beloved, God didn't leave mankind in ruin and misery. He would have been perfectly just to do so. But God is not only a God of justice, righteousness, and wrath. He is also a God of love and mercy and grace. And He extended that mercy and grace to us. And so He did not leave us. He did not leave Adam's race in ruin and misery with death and judgment the only thing to which they could look forward. He provided a means for those who would desire to escape that coming wrath. 
among the ancient Jews, the means was their sacrificial system. Summed up and pictured, if you will, in the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb. You remember the story, right? It was the night that God visited judgment upon the Egyptians in order to deliver His people Israel from their slavery. So He instructed the nation of Israel to slaughter a lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish, a a perfect lamb as it were, and to swab its blood on the doorposts and the lentil of the house in which they dwell. When the death angel came upon the homes of those Israelites upon which the blood had been swabbed, it passed over the home, sparing the firstborn son in all of those homes. The angel was satisfied by the death of the innocent victim in the place of the people. But every home without blood swabbed on its doorposts and lentil, the death angel visited its judgment upon them. Now listen to me. Listen carefully here. It was not the actual lamb's death that saved the people. It wasn't the death of the little lamb that did it. It was faith in the promised deliverer who was to come and who would ultimately satisfy God's wrath through His own death. A reality to which that Passover lamb merely pointed or prefigured. It wasn't about the death of a lamb. It was about the death of the one who would come 1,500 years later and fulfill that first Passover. The promised one. Who when he arrived on the scene, the prophet John looked at him in John chapter 1, verse 29, we're told, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who what? takes away the sin of the world. It wasn't about the death of the little lamb. It was about the death of the one to come for whom that innocent lamb merely prefigured. That takes us all the way back to a The Apostle Paul's statement here in Romans chapter 4 and in verse 25. Jesus our Lord who was delivered up because of our transgressions. Delivered up. This verb is used several times in the Gospels to refer to Jesus being handed over. First by Judas to the Roman or to the Jewish authorities and soldiers and then From the priest handed over to Pilate and finally by Pilate over to the soldiers who crucified him. He was delivered over. He was delivered up. In the context here of Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it refers to Jesus being handed over to death by God the Father in order for him to die in the place of sinners. You turn a few pages to the right to Romans chapter 8, verse 32, you'll see the same verb used again, and it specifically says, Romans 8, verse 32, He, that is God, who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. Delivered Him up for us all. Or Acts chapter 2, 
verse 23. Peter, on that first day of Pentecost, as he's preaching a sermon here, he says, this man, that is Jesus, was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. How old was the plan? The Scripture tells us it goes back to before the foundation of the earth. The crucifixion, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was not an afterthought. It wasn't a plan B. It wasn't some second idea that God came up with that how He might redeem Adam's ruined race. It was God's predetermined plan from the beginning. Foretold, by the way, quite vividly by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, if you're still using one of those pew Bibles, page 737. Isaiah 53, verse 4, it says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Down to verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. Down the end of verse 6, But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Verse 8 at the end, For the transgression of My people to whom the stroke was due. Verse 10 in the middle, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, verse 11 at the end, as he will bear their iniquities, verse 12 near the end, yet he himself bore the sin of many. Fourteen times, if I counted it correctly. It speaks of Christ's substitution. He bore our sins. He suffered in our place. He died our death. Back to Romans 4. He was delivered up because of our transgressions. In other words, our transgressions provide the reason for Jesus being delivered up to crucifixion. It's our transgressions. It's our sin and shortcoming. It's our willful disobedience. It's our moral failures. It's our ethical failures. They provide the reason for Him to die. They are the reason He must be our substitute. Probably no simpler way to say it than this. Our sin is the reason Christ was crucified. Or let me make it a little more specific. Your sin was the reason Christ was crucified. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the testimony of the Scriptures. All of us. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And the penalty for our sin is death and judgment. 
We either pay that penalty ourselves or we rely on the death of Jesus Christ to pay it for us. That's what Paul means here when he says in verse 25 of Romans chapter 4, He who was delivered up because of our transgressions. But here's a question. We know he died. The evidence of that is overwhelming. We know he died. We know the Bible says that he died for our transgressions in our place as our substitute. But here's my question for you. How do you know that his death actually worked? How do you know his death actually paid the price in full? How do you know there's not something left on the account, some small residual balance that needs to be paid? It's a good question, isn't it? Imagine going through life, the whole of your life, trusting that this atonement, this sacrificial death of this man who lived 2,000 years ago was going to pay the bill in full. And then at the end, when you die and come before God, you find out, sorry, there's a residual payment to be made. But see, then it would be too late. That takes us to the second part of the verse and the second part of the meaning of Easter. The meaning of Easter is found in Jesus' resurrection. How do I know that He actually paid my debt in full? How do I know my sin has been completely atoned for on the cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago? How do I know? Where is my sense of assurance? Where is my confidence? He was raised because of our justification. You see it? The end of verse 25, he was raised because of our justification. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, beloved, is no small matter. It's not incidental somehow to the gospel story. It is absolutely central. It is absolutely critical. In fact, it is the cornerstone of Christian preaching. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. No resurrection preaching, no Christian preaching. No belief in the resurrection, no Christianity. They are absolutely, inseparably linked together. Now, lest you think that that is somehow my modern notion or interpretation of the fact, let me just quickly remind you of the preaching of the first apostles, those early disciples as they moved out throughout the Roman Empire, everywhere they went preaching the Gospel. Jesus Christ had clearly been resurrected from the dead. They absolutely knew it. They knew why. And they wanted everyone else to know. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Maybe I'll go back to 23 to pick it up. 
Christ, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. And God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. First Christian preaching after the resurrection focuses on the resurrection. Chapter 3, verse 15. Verse 14. But you disown the Holy and Righteous One and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the Prince of Life, the One whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Chapter 4, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Chapter 10. Verse 40. End of verse 39. Yeah, the whole of verse 39. And we are witnesses. Of all the things that he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Verse 40, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible. Not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen before him by God. And on and on they go. They say, and we are those witnesses. God raised him from the dead. Chapter 13. Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. There's always that contrasting statement. The verse before always speaks of his crucifixion. This one, the, the second verse, contrasts it and says, but he's raised from the dead. He's not dead anymore. He's alive. Verse 37. He whom God raised did not undergo decay. This is just a smattering, a sampling of that early preaching. Preaching that was rooted in the reality of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's indispensable to the Gospel. Why? Why is that message indispensable? Why must that message be there or you don't have Christianity at all? Because it is God's indisputable and public affirmation that Jesus was who He said He was and did what He said He would do. All throughout His public ministry, Jesus said and did a number of amazing things. His constant message was that He was the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel, the One whom the ancient prophets had foretold. Specifically, he claimed to be able to forgive sin. Matthew chapter 9, verses 5 through 7. Which is easier to say, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and he went home. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sin. Beloved, the only one who can forgive sin is God, the one whose law has been violated. 
Jesus claimed to hold the power over life and death. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, speaking to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He said, I hold the power of life and death. He claimed to be the final judge. John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. It is Christ Himself who will be the final judge. He claimed to be equal with God the Father. John chapter 10, verse 30. He said, I and the Father are one. One in essence. A direct claim to deity. And by the way, the Jews understood that because they picked up stones to kill Him. He also claimed to be the only way to reach the Father. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to Him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Those are astounding claims. Those would be the rantings of a lunatic if it weren't for the resurrection. You know, the amazing thing is after that three and a half years of public ministry where he repeatedly went throughout the nation and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, performing an amazing number of messianic miracles that reinforced and demonstrated his authority, the nation turned on him. They turned on him and they called for him to be crucified and a common criminal to be released in his place. So what about his bold claims? How do we know that he's able to forgive sin? How do we know that he has the power over life and death? How do we know that he's the final judge? How do we know he's equal with God the Father? How do we know he's the only way to reach the Father? How do we know anything with regard to this glorious one? Scripture is very, very clear. You know one thing that's really amazing about the Bible? Is it is the way that it faces the common problems of life head on and it doesn't avoid them. It's not afraid of the hard question or the hard answer. In fact, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17, Paul says there to the church at Corinth, he says, you know, if Christ had not been raised from the dead, we are of all men most to be pitied, for we are still in our sin. We'll have been on a fool's errand. To follow a crucified Messiah who's still in the grave. If Jesus was still in the grave, he would be nothing other than another one in the long line of dead guys who said they were prophets from God. There's no shortage of dead guys who have claimed to be prophets of God, but they're all dead still. Jesus Christ is alive. His resurrection is the evidence that He was completely righteous. 
Therefore, Acts chapter 2, verse 24, death could not hold him. He did not die for his own sin, for he had none. He died for the sin of his people. Therefore, the grave could not hold him. It is proof positive that God had accepted his ransom. Thus, the guilt of our sin was canceled and we were acquitted. Another way to say justify at the end of verse 25 here in Romans 4. His resurrection is the surety of our justification or our acquittal. It puts an end to the agony of death. So now you know the meaning of Easter. Right? Now you know the meaning of Easter. Christ died on that cross as a substitute. As a perfect sacrifice. As the Passover lamb. You know that He was raised from the dead on the third day as God's vindication and demonstration that 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 sacrifice had been fully and completely accepted by God and that all sin of those who by faith have entrusted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ has been extinguished on that cross. There is no residual payment. We're free. But you know there's a difference between knowing and believing, huh? There's a gigantic difference between knowing and believing. There are many people who can spout orthodoxy. They know the truth. They just don't believe it. Or at least personally don't believe it. They believe it in some vague general sense. Jesus died for our sins. As long as it's all out there, their problems are when they want to personalize that He died for my sin. That's where they have trouble. You may even say, I believe it. I know it, and I believe it. So my question for you is, if you know it and you believe it, does it change how you live? Has it translated itself into action? Is your life different because you know it and believe it? On June 30th, 1859, the French tightrope walker Charles Blunden became the first man to walk on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Now, why in the world anyone would want to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope? More than 25,000 people gathered to watch him walk 1,100 feet suspended on a tiny rope 160 feet above the raging waters of Niagara Falls. Now, I've been to Niagara Falls. It is a big place, and it's a long drop. He worked without any net. He worked without any safety harness. The slightest slip would plunge him to his death on the rocks at the base of the falls. When he had reached safety on the Canadian side, the crowd burst into a roar. On the days that followed, Blunden would walk across the falls many times. Once he walked across it on stilts. 
Another time he took a chair and a stove with him and he sat down midway across. Now, this is on a tightrope. He sat down midway across, cooked an omelet and ate it. Once he carried his manager across, riding piggyback on his shoulders. Another time he pushed a wheelbarrow loaded with 350 pounds of cement. All across that skinny cable, 1,100 feet suspended above the falls. story says that on one occasion he asked the cheering spectators if they thought he could push a man across sitting in a wheelbarrow. A mighty roar of approval rose from the crowd and spying a man cheering wildly, he said, Sir, do you think I could safely carry you across in this wheelbarrow? Of course, the man said. Yeah, you figured it out. Blondin looked straight at him and said, get in. Get in. The man refused. Do you believe the message of Easter? Do you believe it? Then get in the wheelbarrow. Get into the wheelbarrow. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice because it is our certain hope of our own eternal salvation and ultimate resurrection ourselves. That the life He has, He willingly shares with us. That we too can have eternal life as He has. The life of God within us. Our sin forgiven, our transgressions blotted out able to be in Your presence, not because we are perfect ourselves, our Father, because we are anything but, but because we, by faith, have been wrapped in the robe of the righteousness of Christ. We believe that His death on that cross is our death. We believe His resurrection is our resurrection. We believe His perfect life has been credited to us by faith. And thus, Father, when You look at us, You see not our flaws, but You see His perfections. And so, our Father, we are challenged this morning to get into the wheelbarrow. To transfer the message of Easter from our heads to our hearts and out through our hands. That it would not be something we would merely give mental assent to or something that we would give lip service to. But, our Father, it would be our hope, our goal, the very purpose of our lives, that it would embrace all that we are and all that we will do, that we would be a transformed people for whom there could be no other explanation other than Christ has redeemed us. I pray, Lord God, for Your mercy to extend to us this morning. Those within the hearing of my voice who have not yet placed their faith in Christ alone, 
trusting perhaps in Him and other things or perhaps not trusting at all. Our Father, may You draw them to Yourself and enable them to embrace Christ fully. For He alone can save them. He said Himself He came into the world to save sinners. Our Father, we qualify. Save us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.